You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey, City on a Hill, my name's Andy Judd. Wonderful to be with you this morning, opening the Bible on the subject of uh, refugees. Now, actually, the Bible has quite a lot to say on the subject of refugees. Um, In fact, the story uh, all the way along, stories of migration, uh, pretty central. So Abraham, the start of the Israelite nation who was called by God, was called to leave his home and everything he knows to travel to the land of Canaan, to to, uh, live there as a migrant in a strange land. The thing about Canaan is that from time to time it has quite bad famines. There's droughts and famines. And so very early on in the story, as we flick the pages of the Old Testament in Genesis, we hear of his family becoming economic refugees, moving from the land of Canaan to a place where they don't have such trouble with water, Egypt. Now, anyone, uh, this is a special prize. There's no actual prize, just glory. Anyone uh, know why Egypt doesn't have a problem with famine and droughts in the same way? Not a rhetorical question, anyone? The River Nile, fantastic. Someone loves Egypt. Uh, the River Nile. All right, they go from either like a little bit wet to very wet is sort of the, the situation. So there's plenty of fertile uh, land there. And so the people periodically would come from the land of Canaan, where God's people had moved to, to Egypt, basically to escape famine as economic uh, refugees. But the thing is, from uh, time to time, pharaohs would arise who didn't like these foreigners residing within us. They would say nasty things about all these Canaanites living here. Uh, They would promise, they would huff and puff and promise and make speeches about how they're going to build walls and make the Canaanites pay for it. Um, That's not historically true, um, by the way. There's sort vibe. They would definitely make statements about all these Canaanite refugees. In fact, one of the key stories in the book of Exodus in the history of God's people is about exactly one of those pharaohs, someone who came to power, noticed that there were all these uh, Israelites multiplying in the land of Egypt and said, we've got to do something about it. We've got to do something about these refugees. They don't belong here. They were living in the land of Goshen, which is kind of the north um, east, the lower Nile. Um, So they made some laws. They made life hard for them to try to stop them from multiplying. They made them into slaves, made them build cities like Pyramses was one of the cities they were made to build. The Pharaoh even even started killing their male children, a policy of extreme genocide. So they're slaves. They're being killed. The people cry out to God, and in the Exodus event, God hears their cries and delivers them out of slavery Uh, in Egypt, through the Red Sea, if you know the story of Moses and Mount Sinai and going through the desert, all that kind of thing, that's where the story comes in and they return to Canaan. Now, why do I tell you this? It's because that experience of being refugees in a foreign land, being mistreated by those people, and then being rescued by a God who heard their cry and had compassion on them, becomes central to the identity of God's people, Israel. Well, in fact, it should be central because God keeps on reminding them about that experience as he uh, lays down the law. Uh, Lots of examples, actually. uh, Moses calls his son Gershom. Gershom, Ger, is the Hebrew word for a foreigner, a sojourner, um, a, a refugee, you might say, a migrant. And when the commandments come down through Moses on Mount Sinai, see if you can spot what's distinctive about all these commands. 
I'll pick a few. Exodus chapter 20, 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. And in fact, that's a pretty low bar. Don't oppress them. <laughs> you know, not oppressing them is one thing, but God actually commands them to go out of their way to be generous towards foreigners, migrants, refugees. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19. I love the book of Leviticus. Very underrated book. There's some amazing gold in there. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. In other words, be deliberately a bit slack. Be deliberately a bit inefficient in your business. Why? Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. In other words, allow them to go and pick up the edges of your field so that they can live. Why? I am the Lord your God. God says that when he really wants you to pay attention. Leviticus 19.33, later on. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. You were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, why? Why is this so important? Well, it's about, about the character of who God is. Who is the God that they know and are worshipping? The same God we are, but what is he like? Well, Deuteronomy 10 tells us he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. In other words, mess with them and you'll have to answer to him. Because God is the one who loves the fatherless, the widow and the foreigner the migrant, the refugee, even in the tithing law. Every now and then I meet people, this is wonderful, I meet people who say that they practice biblical tithing. And I'm like, that's awesome. Can I come along? Right, because you know how biblical tithing works, right? If you look in Deuteronomy 26, biblical tithing is you put aside 10% of all your income for that year and blow it on a massive party. Do you know that? Deuteronomy 26, when you finish setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Can you imagine spending 10% of your annual income on meat, beer, wine, grain, salad if you want, all those things, and inviting the poor and the foreigners and the priests and everyone along to share in that party with you as a sign of God's abundance. I'm all for biblical tithing. But see how generosity to the outsiders is at the core of that practice. And I mean, you go on throughout the book. Once you start noticing this, it's everywhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the foreigner. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Mess with them and you answer to him. What's the book of Ruth about? Well, the book of Ruth about is about an economic migrant heading to the land of Moab and the covenantal love shown by a refugee and to a refugee. What do the prophets from Isaiah through to Zechariah spend much of their time criticizing Israel for? Well, it's their treatment of foreigners and the poor. And this continues in the New Testament, because obviously it's the same God in the New Testament with the same priorities. Uh, what's the Christmas story about? Well, Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing political persecution as political refugees to Egypt. 
What's striking about uh, Jesus' ministry? The way he crosses over into other cultures. The way he speaks to a foreigner like the Syrophoenician woman or the Samaritan woman. In fact, what is the gospel? Think about how how do the New Testament writers describe the gospel? Well, according to Paul, one way of describing the gospel is that you were foreigners and exiles. Displaced people. You were displaced people, far, wandering far from the presence of God, alone and without protection, and yet God has drawn you near. It's there in even the way we talk about what the blood of Jesus does for us, that you've been brought near and given a home. How are we to live then as Christians? Well, as people who embrace the foreigners amongst us. In fact, we are to live as foreigners and strangers in the land, holding out God's welcome to others. Who is my neighbor? Someone once asked Jesus. And they got a pretty full-on response. The neighbor is whoever you see that needs your help. But what if they're a Samaritan? Especially if they're a Samaritan, he says. Now, I, I realize at this point, I am laboring this point a little bit. Because once you start to see it there in the Bible, it's everywhere. This theme of God's concern and our responsibility towards the outsider, and particularly singled out, are those experiencing forced migration. Theologically, the ground is soaked in this theme, in this principle, that our Father in heaven cares for the foreigner, the oppressed the displaced person, with a unique and terrifyingly passionate concern. Whether we are, put it this way, how we treat them is a reflection on whether we're on his side or not on his side. According to the Old Testament prophets, whole nations have been judged and will be judged on how they treat refugees. So what's the situation in Australia? Some uh, definitions now. Uh, A refugee is someone who is, uh, by definition, outside their own country and has a well-founded fear of persecution. So they're unable to return home. They're unable or unwilling to avail themselves of protection from their home country. Now, an asylum seeker is slightly different. An asylum seeker is someone who hasn't yet been confirmed or determined to be a refugee, but may well be, and is claiming that status. Australia has signed up uh, in the uh, Refugee Convention 1951. We have signed up to give protection uh, legally to people in those circumstances. So we have legal obligations as a country towards them. How many are there in the world? Well, UNHCR reports at the end of 2021, there were 89.3 million forcibly displaced people in the world. That could be for a variety of reasons. Uh, Maybe there's a war in their home country. Maybe there's persecution, political, religious, other persecution. Maybe they're fleeing violence. Now, it makes sense that a large number of them are children. 41% of fact of them are children also makes sense that most of them come from regions which are experiencing conflict. Uh, many of the, the majority of these refugees come from places like uh, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South, uh, South Sudan, and Myanmar. Now, a huge chunk of these are temporarily displaced. In other words, when the conflict's over, they hope to go home. They're not, they're not looking for a permanent place, a permanent country to call home. They're looking to go home. So uh, there's millions of Ukrainian refugees right now 
most of whom are hoping to be able to return home sometime soon when the war is over. But of those millions and millions of refugees in the world, people who are forcibly displaced, 4.6 million of them know that they're never going to be able to go home. 4.6 million of them know they're never returning home anytime soon, and so they're seeking either temporary or permanent asylum in another country. And Australia is actually one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have, really, a refugee problem, uh, simply because we're an island and we're a long way away from these conflict zones. Right, so we don't have hundreds of thousands of people crossing our borders like some countries in the world do. We enjoy, thank God, an amazing peace right now in this region of the world. So we don't have hundreds of thousands of people on our doorstep like many of those countries, which means that we have the luxury, which many countries don't have, of choosing. We can choose how many refugees we take, and we can choose who we bring in and on what circumstances. But because we have this luxury as a country, and because we're a very wealthy country, we do have our own ethical issues that arise in this issue, that as Christians we need to be on top of and need to be informed about and think about. The two issues I want to um, highlight today are issues of our deterrence policies and issues of the number of refugees that we welcome. So if you're up for it, let's have a look at the situation with deterrence. And I want to, um, to illustrate this, our deterrence policies, <coughs> pardon me, I want to tell you two stories about some people that I know personally. I'm going to call the, uh, call the first guy Ben. Uh, ben was here on a student visa a number of years ago studying engineering, and he comes from a country, a, a Muslim country, a, a staunchly Muslim country, but he was studying here in Australia doing engineering when um, he started reading the Bible. Uh, myself and some others had the privilege of opening God's word and introducing him to God. <laughs> he said, I always knew that God was a God of love, not war, and he met that God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when his family back home, someone tipped them off that, that he'd become a Christian and they started threatening him. His uh, grandfather, I think, was a religious judge of some sort, so these were not idle threats. And in the country he was from, it was illegal for him to become a Christian. In fact, uh, he could face uh, violence, probably, maybe even death if he returned back home. They knew that, so they threatened him over Zoom or Skype or something uh, and threatened him, if you don't come back, um, if you, sorry, if you don't come back and stop being a Christian, then these bad things will happen to you. In fact, they stopped paying for his student fees, which meant the university disenrolled him, which meant his visa was cancelled, which means he was heading home. He told me that he was prepared to die for Jesus, but he would rather not. And so his gospel community raised uh, money for him to get a lawyer who made the case to the Australian government that here was someone in need of our protection. He had a well-founded fear that if he returned home, he would be killed. And so the government granted it. Right, with the help of that lawyer, he still now lives in this country. He has a protection visa. I want to tell you another story now, which is similar but has one crucial difference. Let me tell you about Hoda and Kabe. They were um, students of mine at Ridley College. I had the privilege of having them in my Old Testament class. They were fantastic people, awesome students. I knew something of their story already, but I actually didn't know all the details until I read one day in the Sydney Morning Herald an article by um, Barney Swartz, who's a, a journalist, um, and also an article in the Melbourne Anglican. And these quotes I'm about to share with you are from those articles. So they came to Australia because the situation in Iran, where they were from, became very, very dangerous for Christians like them. 
Hoda says, Kaveh's father was dramatically arrested three times in Iran, and the government, uh, the current government, had executed his grandfather. The state considered his family to be enemies. The political issues were exhausting him, and he could not bear it. It was not difficult to get out of the country because we had a passport, but it was difficult to leave a place we loved and which we called home. So in 2012, they left Iran. They flew by plane to Indonesia. But there in Indonesia, they found themselves stranded. They discovered that they could not work. Their money was stolen, and they became homeless. In fact, they were even arrested three times. During the ordeal, she says, I just kept thinking that one day we could drink a cup of tea without stress, fear, and running. I had a little faith, but lots of fear. However, still that small bit of faith with fear was used by Jesus to do a miracle, she says. Eventually, they had no options. They'd run out of options in Indonesia, and so they uh, made the difficult and dangerous decision to try to come to Australia by boat. We had no idea how to get to Australia by boat, how dangerous and long the journey would be. By the time we got on the boat, I was four months pregnant, she says. We did not eat any food for 18 days. I lost 11 kilos. The storms were violent, the waves were high, and smashing into the boat, which was not made for the open oceans. We expected the boat to break apart because of the waves. The conditions on the boat were horrible. 64 people were crowded into one fishing boat, she says. It was a small boat, 18 days on the ocean, and we didn't know what was going to happen, what was going to happen to us. And she says she still remembers the smile on the face of the Australian naval officer who reached down after intercepting the boat and said, welcome to Australia. Um, Kaveh and Hoda um, now have three kids. They're actually ordained Anglican ministers. Uh, they, I have lost track of how many congregations they lead. It's, it's, it's a crazy amount that they do. Um, they invest huge amounts of time volunteering in the community as well. Hoda just told me um, that she has just run a, like a, a massive convention for people who speak Farsi to help them access support for mental health stuff. They're really active in the community. But while they're obviously no less legitimate refugees than uh, Ben in my first story, there's a crucial detail in their story which makes a big difference in their lives. After they had arrived in Australia, the law changed, which made it impossible for anyone who arrived by boat ever to be resettled permanently in Australia. This is our home, she says, because you have freedom to choose your own religion and the government cares about and protects you. But unfortunately, after nine years, we still have the same visa status. We are standing on air. There is nothing clear for us. Sometimes we feel that we are not welcome here. We try hard to contribute to the life of Australia. We pay tax. This is where our kids grow up. But at the end, we don't have the rights of Australians. When my son, who was born here, is old enough to go to university, we can't afford the price of education. At the same time, they stress they're really grateful. Uh, most Australian people are always supportive, welcoming. They help us to settle in and encourage us. And we are really thankful to God for them. We experienced corrupt government and bad policies back in Iran. So we are really grateful to this government. And they take huge comfort in the knowledge that God himself knows what it's like to be a refugee. God knows what we experienced, they said. Jesus Christ was a refugee, and we are in the same boat with him somehow. He understands our pain, 
He understands our journey and he comforts us in that way. Now, there's about 30,000 or more people in a similar situation as them. Australia's policy um, of mandatory detention and also temporary protection visas means that if you're like Hoda and Kave and you arrive in this country without already some other type of visa, then you're going to be placed immediately in immigration detention. So in other words, unless you already have a student visa or a tourist visa and you arrive and then claim asylum, if you arrive on our doorstep without another visa and claim asylum, you will be detained while your claims are assessed. It's uh, usually going to be outside of Australia on Nauru or Papua New Guinea. Uh, and that process can take months or even years, though there is some possibility of getting a bridging visa for part of that time. So this uncertainty in the process and the mandatory detention policy means that we are essentially detaining people indefinitely who have committed no crime, in fact, who we have an obligation under international law to protect. Many of those people will be children. Furthermore, even if the government decides that you are a legitimate refugee, you are really fleeing for your life, you cannot ever obtain permanent residency or citizenship here. A permanent protection visa is excluded if you came by boat. There's no path for you out of that situation. No matter how worthy your claim is, no matter how much you need our protection, no matter how much you contribute to society, you are never going to get more than a temporary protection visa. Now, we're almost always uh, talking about people who have arrived by boat in those circumstances. It's a very different situation if you fly in and you have a tourist visa and then you claim asylum. Uh, mandatory detention, I mean, this is the left and right series. Actually, mandatory detention is a bipartisan policy in this country. It was instituted by the Hawke and Keating Labor government and was continued by the Howard Liberal government. Government, uh, But conditions around that time um, got quite bad and there was some problems in the system. Children were being, um, couldn't be separated from their parents. There were too many rivals. And so they started trying to notch up the deterrence policies more and introduced a second feature of our policy, which is offshore processing. Around about 2000, 2001, there were about 4,000 or so people a year arriving and that was about when, in August 2001, uh, MV Tampa, a Norwegian fishing vessel, uh, picked up, uh, a Norwegian vessel, I should say, picked up in distress uh, a, a, uh, a fishing boat with about 433 people on board. Now, they were picking them up because they were in trouble. They were going to take them back to Indonesia. But the people on board who were trying to get to Australia refused to go back to Indonesia and threatened to jump overboard unless they uh, were, were taken to Australian territory. Now, the Australian government cabinet met to discuss what to do about this, and they decided that if they allowed these people to hijack a vessel effectively and demand to be taken here, um, then we would have an open-door policy and we'd launch 1,000 boats, etc. So, um, at that point, Christmas Island was deemed not Australia. Now, it is Australian territory, but for immigration purposes, we just decided that's not Australia. So if you reach there, you can't claim asylum. And future arrivals from this point onwards would be sent for offshore processing in the Pacific Islands, um, like in Nauru, for instance. Now, the idea behind this was to send a really clear message to people trying to claim asylum and to people smugglers that it's not going to work. Don't come here by boat. As of May this year, there are 1,402 people in immigration detention, uh, about 112 on Nauru and 105 on Papua New Guinea. So mandatory detention and this offshore processing temporary protection visa situation 
is our deterrence strategy. It is, let's be clear, deliberately harsh. That's the point. It's deliberately harsh so as to deter people from trying to come to Australia. Even if they're legitimate refugees, that's the policy. It's bipartisan, both sides of politics support it, uh, Labor and Liberal nationals, um, although there have been some suggestions that Labor will uh, tweak some of the details, such as abolishing temporary protection visas. Now, on the other hand, lawyers and refugee advocates support uh, a different policy where um, refugees would be returned to Australia from the uh, islands and live in the community while being assessed. They support permanent visas for people like Hoda um, and independent judicial review. And the only major party who supports that is the Greens. So how should Christians think through this issue? Well, on the whole, actually, church groups have been really vocal on this. Our cathedral, Anglican Cathedral down the road, has a big let's fully welcome refugees sign, and they've committed to putting that up until the policy changes. It's going to be there for a while. Uh, we also um, have had non-violent Christian protests recently. One of our um, bishops, Paul Barker, uh, locked himself in a cage outside one of these facilities to protest indefinite um, detention. The argument from Christians who oppose it is that it's immoral to mistreat somebody to protect someone else. So it's immoral to indefinitely detain a person so that other people won't attempt to come here by boat. Because while the, what we're trying to do, the, the, the consequences might be a good thing, there's some things you just shouldn't do. Right? So you shouldn't lie even though someone might become a Christian. Right? That's a good thing, but you shouldn't lie to do that. And the same logic applies here. Sometimes the ends don't justify the means. It's wrong to be cruel, to one legitimate refugee in order to deter another one from taking a dangerous boat journey. Now, it's really important in this series, particularly as we do left and right, I think to wrestle with the genuine concerns on both sides of these issues. Um, I really wanted to kind of get my head inside the issues, so I talked to a lot of people, and I really want to particularly understand the conservative position, uh, the mandatory detention position. So I asked former treasurer Peter Costello if he would sit down for an hour with me and just explain. He's a Christian man, he attends an Anglican church uh, up the road from where I live, and he graciously, I must say, agreed to sit down with me and explain. He was in the room when all this was going on. He was in the cabinet as treasurer when these decisions were being made. So I was grateful for his time in explaining things. He made two points which I think I feel the weight of and I want to share with you. First is the issue of fairness. He points out that not everyone who arrives in Australia is legitimately fearing persecution. A lot of people just want to live in Australia because it's a great place to be. Not every person uh, is a legitimate person, a legitimate refugee claim. And so we do need to assess uh, and we do need to work out who should come. And also every person that we did accept by boat would take away a place from someone who had been uh, through the process and might even have a better case uh, who might be sitting in a refugee camp across the world and have just as good a claim for protection. So we need to have some control over our borders. We need to ensure that those coming here don't have criminal records. They aren't part of a uh, terrorist organisation. I feel the weight of this, and I think it's important for us to wrestle with that. On the other hand, uh, refugee advocates would reply, uh, for their part, that yes, um, queue jumping is a bad thing, but that implies there's a queue. Right? It implies that there is a, a way for people to legitimately claim um, refuge from overseas. The majority of refugees and people seeking asylum um, 
no, sorry, I, this is from um, one of our local experts, Rachel Saravanamuthu, um, who is, uh, works with refugees, and I asked her, she's part of our church in the gospel community, I asked her about this. She says this, the majority of refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia arrive by plane or on another type of visa and then sought asylum, but this requires money for the plane ticket, the ability to get an ID document, and apply for and be granted another type of visa to get to the airport, etc. Many refugees can't access those things, so they come by boat. Interestingly, the Australian government granted lots of tourist visas to Ukrainians so they could come here and then seek asylum. They have not done this, as far as she's aware, for any other country. And there are also stats, she points out, that people who come by boat are far more likely to be found to be refugees than people who arrive by plane. So that's the weight of the issue, the fairness issue that we need to wrestle with. Secondly, um, Peter Costello raised that we have a responsibility to discourage people from doing something uh, dangerous, that is, taking a dangerous sea journey um, to Australia. Now, he pointed out uh, in our conversation that when you're in government, you have to take responsibility for the unintended consequences of your decisions. Whereas, he said, when you're, say, a preacher you can take the moral high ground and not uh, take any of the consequences of your decisions. Look, that's a fair cop, and I'll take that. It's easy in the commentary box to criticise a policy. But we do have to reckon with um, why that policy is there. If, If I think mandatory detention is immoral, it's immoral to deter someone by being cruel to someone else, then we have to work out a way, a solution that doesn't involve a whole bunch of people in a humanitarian disaster that we have caused. If you advertise, he says, if you advertise that if you make it to Christmas Island, then we'll give you protection, then you're going to launch a 1,000 boats. And we don't know how many people have drowned trying to make that journey. And this is not a theoretical thing. Um, Sieve X, the um, suspected illegal entry vehicle, um, in 2001, October 2001, was identified. Um, it sank in Indonesian waters with 400, or 350 on board, including... Uh, over 100 children. At that point, Australian agencies were nowhere near it. We didn't know it was sinking. We couldn't help. The nearest ship was 150 nautical miles away. So we just don't know how many people have died trying to get to Christmas Island. And in fairness, speaking to refugee advocates, they acknowledge that this is a significant issue. We do need to discourage people from attempting the journey from Indonesia. But preferably, they say, in a coordinated regional way. So it's a question of what to do. Again, Rachel says this. We need a regional solution to share responsibility for the global refugee crisis. Most of the refugees in our region are not in Australia. They're being hosted in developing countries. Refugees face dire conditions in Indonesia and other host countries. So instead of spending millions turning back boats, we could use that money to assist those host countries to support refugees and have an orderly resettlement program for the region, rather than expecting people to get to a refugee camp, which might not always be possible. So while I personally do find it hard to reconcile myself to or be at peace with our current mandatory detention policy, I think I need to recognise that the solution, the problem it's trying to solve is real. Uh, we do need to propose something else. Uh, that, that is, I mean, some people may well support the policy out of a lack of compassion, but I don't think it's fair to accuse our politicians of that. It is a real problem they're trying to solve. And so I'm all for giving honest criticism, but... Um, I'm going to keep writing those letters humbly, asking for them to find a better solution. All right, second issue we need to look at 
is the number that we welcome. And there's extreme views on this. Some people are like, let's open all the borders, have free migration to and from Australia. Other people are like, no, we want to have no immigration. In the middle, though, um, most of our political parties support kind of in the tens of thousands. So um, the Liberals maintain the refugee quota at, um, they want it to stay at 13,750. That's down from 2020 when it was 18,750. Uh, Labor have promised to increase it to 27,000, and the Greens want 50,000 plus 20,000 each from uh, Afghanistan and Ukraine. So how does this compare globally? Are we a generous nation or not? Well, it depends how you do the stats. We take a fair chunk compared to places like New Zealand. Right? So if you compare um, the number that we take, we do pretty well um, compared to some countries, particularly if you're measuring that of the number totally resettled, which is about 57,000 a year. We took 6,000 of that in 2021. That's pretty good. But keep in mind, vast majority, we're talking about millions of refugees around the world, aren't officially recognised or resettled. So yeah, we took 6,000, but that's about 1% of global refugees in any given year, which puts us at number 30 in the world per capita and number 60 if you take into account our wealth. So most refugees are being taken by developing countries, countries like, um, well, countries that can't pay for it. So Uganda recognised hundreds of thousands of refugees last year. Turkey has 3.8 million at the moment. We can see that we're actually, as a rich country, not pulling our weight. Now, those on the right of politics would point out that it's not just about picking a number. We do need to welcome them well. We need to uh, recognise that and be realistic about how much effort there is in, in uh, welcoming, integrating, accepting um, people who've gone through a deeply traumatic forced migration process. Culture shock is significant even for like sending missionaries overseas in the best of circumstances with training. These are people, children who may have witnessed their family members killed, now in a country with a different language, different culture. Uh, that's going to need work from our, from our side to welcome them well. And so I think it's good to feel that weight of how much actual work it takes and how we can welcome them well. It's not just about a number, it's actually about um, putting effort in to welcome them. At the same time, I think the gospel challenges us to do that. And churches actually are very active in English classes, teaching people English, helping them to um, uh, gain skills on like com computers. Right? right now, one Anglican charity, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, is advertising for people who want to volunteer to help with digital literacy. Right? So churches, I think, are motivated by the gospel and should be motivated by the gospel to help. But we recognise that there is a cost. Many working in the refugee advocacy area have noticed how different our response has been in Australia to people uh, fleeing the violence in Ukraine. Right, we've seen the pictures and suddenly we're not asking questions about can we really fit them in? Can we afford it? What if they're criminals? We're not asking that because we're moved by compassion. We've seen those pictures of the families fleeing violence. I would hope that having a similar understanding of what's going on in Afghanistan or South Sudan would move us to compassion for them too. And so if you're a person here who knows Jesus, I hope that we can leave here with a fresh call on us to live out the reality of the gospel, that we know we have been welcomed by God 
as aliens, as exiles, as people wandering far from the presence of God without a home, without hope. We've been welcomed in. And so we are empowered and called and challenged to welcome in others as well, to welcome those who are in needs. And I hope the challenge here for us can be in our households and in our gospel communities to think practically about how we can do that, how we can be on the forefront of welcoming the vulnerable, including refugees. Now, maybe that means at a political level or social level, writing to our elected representatives, or maybe that means donating money to the work of lawyers who represent them, or maybe that means just practically volunteering to help with digital literacy. I hadn't even thought of that. But of course, you can't do anything in this country without computer skills. The barriers separating us from God and from each other have been overcome by the costly love and blood of Jesus. And this is a precious thing. If you know that, if I know that, it motivates us to embrace people who are different to us. It empowers us to cross that cultural barrier and go out of our way to help. And if you don't know that, if you don't know Jesus yet, you're going to love Jesus, seriously. Because he's the one who came down from heaven to embrace us. And so if there's a part of you that your heart breaks for those who are suffering, the part of you who yearns for justice, then you, you will love the true God that we meet in Jesus. The God who is passionately for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. The God who look, goes out of his way, whose eye is on them and calls us to be too. If you care how people are treated, if you care that people are treated right, if your heart breaks for those suffering, then you'll love Jesus. Uh, we're going to jump in to some questions to continue the conversation uh, for us to be able to keep learning. Uh, so Sharon, I'll jump in with you. Uh, what are your opinions on the tension between maintaining the Australian culture versus providing a safe space for immigrants and refugees to keep their own culture? So many opinions about this. Mm. As a immigrant myself and growing up, um, in the Australian culture and having to really adapt that, adapt to that as a three-year-old mm. is tough. Um, but one of the ways that I have felt welcome um, in this country, uh, certainly I think curiosity mm. is currency. Just be mm. curious about where these people um, have come from, what their story is. And there is so much richness, I think, to life when we mm. um, give space for people to um, express their joy and connection through their cultural needs and traditions. Mm. Learn about that. Um, if you're invited to be a part of that, even better. Mm -hmm. Food is awesome. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I think just taking interest in people, I think, is, mm. is one of the best ways um, to share some of our culture, but then also welcome new cultures, and Melbourne's great for that. Yeah. So, yeah. Curiosity as currency. I like that. that. That's, I think that's a really helpful way to think it through as a way to serve and to love and to mm. learn. Um, those around us. So thank I think you. I, I, might, I probably made a mistake in majoring on the cost of sure. welcoming. But I think one thing I want to say is like, refugees have so much to contribute. Mm. And I hope that's obvious, just the story of like Hoda and Kave. Mm -hmm. They're awesome, resilient, powerful. Um, yeah, so like, yes, there's a cost, but man, it's worth it. Mm. Like, they have so much to contribute. Yep, wonderful. Great, thank you guys. We'll jump to the next question. Maybe. <laughs> Here we go. Um, how do the biblical exhortations to take care of foreign people in the land mesh with the admonitions against mixing with those same people? Yeah, yeah. I think I understand the question. Sorry. So in various parts of the Bible, 
uh, God's people, Israel, were commanded not to intermarry with the people around them in the land, particularly mm. Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance. Uh, they come back. Now, it's important to understand it's the opposite situation that we've got. That was a small, fragile, ethnic minority people, Israel, mm. coming in the midst of a dominant Canaanite culture. And anyone who's trying to maintain your language and culture in that circumstance, mm. um, that's why grandma was saying, make sure you marry someone from our tribe so that your children can speak Hebrew and can meet the real God, right? So there's particular commands mm. in a particular time that you can understand, but it's the opposite of us. It's not a dominant culture welcoming people in. It's a minority culture who are having to preserve their identity. Mm. Now we're in New Testament land, it's worth saying we are the people that, like, I'm not Jewish. Many Christians are, but I'm not Jewish. So I'm actually one of those people um, from the outside who's been welcomed in. Mm. So we need to understand those biblical commands, but also understand that um, it's, it's not at all applicable now. Um, mm. We need to be opening and welcoming. And we're talking about welcoming people in, not marrying them necessarily. Right, yeah. You might want to do that, but that's also just <laughs> let's be clear. All right, we're talking about welcoming outsiders, yeah. um, not about kind of intermarrying. Um, and I think that's a different thing too. Yeah. Good distinction. Though you might want to do that as well. I'm just, yeah, just saying yeah. it's a different issue in the Bible. <laughs> Great. Good. Glad we sort of that. <laughs> we'll jump to the next question. Uh, are churches genuinely motivi- motivated by the gospel or by an ulterior motive to win new converts among people who seem more receptive than an overwhelming secular native population? Oh, I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe I don't... Um... Sharon, if you have any thoughts on that, but um, cross-cultural work is really hard. Mm. Um, And it's, I mean, sitting down, uh, explaining the gospel to um, someone from another culture um, actually requires a lot of work. Um, What I'm motivated by in that is they're a person, and I think every person is made by the same God and so needs to know that God. Mm. Um, So I don't think there's an ulterior motive there. I think the motive is to treat people as people, and to share with whoever is open to hearing. Um, are some kind of people from uh, other countries more open to the gospel than uh, people who are born here? Maybe, um, but I, I don't think there's an ulterior motive there. At least I don't think um, I'm yet to see that in um, myself or the churches I'm in. Sharon, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think it can be the same motive, actually. Um, I, I, maybe it's a matter of strategy. Like if people are coming to this country hungry, for Jesus, we give them Jesus. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if we're generally motivated by the gospel, then we will want to win people for Jesus. Mm. So for me, it's mm. kind of the, the same thing. Yeah, kind of like yeah. both and as yeah. opposed to... Yeah, I don't know if there's... Yeah. I mean, winning you... Con- we don't get a, like a percentage bonus, do we, if we convert someone? No like, one's told me about that. Like, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> generally, like, I think that is motivated by the gospel. So I think yeah. I'd, maybe, I'd maybe question... Um, I just want to see people know their creator, mm. whoever you are, because it's great. Yeah. Jesus is, is awesome. Yeah. It's good motivation to share the gospel. <laughs> we'll jump. I think we have time for one last question. Um, other than our vote for better refugee rights and prayer, how can we have an impact on refugees that are being kept in facilities offshore? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I have a quick thing. Um, There is a lot of stuff on the internet that we can um, read and look at. Uh, Common Grace have a great section on um, organisations that Mm. are helping those processes. And um, we talked about, yeah, 
I think just starting from a position of caring and then letting that, mm. you know, guide you to resources and people that have information on what the next faithful step would be. You know that? I think, I think for me, um, legal processes are very expensive. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a lawyer in this system, um, I've, I've witnessed kind of very close hand um, the difference that having a lawyer makes. So giving money to support lawyers working to represent those people, yeah. uh, those couple hundred people in offshore facilities, um, I think is a really practical thing, as is prayer for a change mm. in, uh, in our policies. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is, this is an opportunity maybe for that curiosity to be at play of figuring out what is it actually, what is actually happening. Like there is maybe what's fed to us, but then also going online and sit, like searching it out, figuring out how we can be the church and maybe it's from afar. Uh, but then, you know, if we're prayerful that our, these lawyers can help and make a clear path forward, then they're going to be joining us and joining in our community and being able to help serve and to like, maybe it's teaching English or digital literacy. Like these are great opportunities to be able to think through next steps. So I think thinking through the facilities offshore is really important, but then also thinking through, all right, what is going to happen when our communities are welcoming people in uh, to ensure that they feel valued and important. Um, I think this has been yeah, really helpful to kind of help us continue thinking through. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to pray that what we've learnt this morning mm. would change us and shape us, uh, and then we will continue on in our service. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who are shaped and motivated by the gospel. Lord, as we love people well and welcome people well uh, and point them to you, Father, no matter where they've come from, no matter what their story is that has led them to this place, Father, I pray that you would help us to be consistent in the way that we interact. Father, I pray that we would be curious um, with the lives of those around us. Uh, what does celebrating in their um, original culture feel like? How can we partner with them and celebrate with them? Uh, Father, we, we love the diversity of the church. Uh, and we love that we get to celebrate that. So, Father, I pray that uh, no matter where we sit on the political spectrum, uh, when we look at these laws, may we be centred by the gospel. Uh, may we each come towards that, go deeper in the gospel instead of further left or further right than where we are, uh, so that we would be men and women who reflect that accurately uh, and really beautifully to the world around us. So, Lord, we, we need your help here. Uh, so please help us and give us wisdom. And it's in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.